G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation to Visionathon today at vision.org.au. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello, welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. I'm Bill, and Pastor Jeff is making his way through major stories of the Bible and the lessons they teach us. There's more to come on the life of Gideon, the story of Ruth and Naomi, right through to the book of Revelation. But in this episode, we'll finish off a message from Joshua chapter 5. It's the account of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. You can find this series wherever you subscribe to podcasts, hit follow and share them with that friend who really needs to hear this message. Let's hear the rest of it now with Pastor Jeff. From time to time in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord will appear, appear. Shows up all the time. He gets worship. He speaks as if he is God. Do you know who this is? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus. You say, whoa, now I'm not a Bible scholar, but Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew. We're in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Let us make man in our own image. Jesus was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Colossians says that in Jesus, all things were made. For Jesus, all things were made. And that Jesus holds everything together. This is the triune God. And there is one whose job it is within the Trinity to come down in the form of man and redeem his people. And all through the Old Testament, God keeps giving a glimpse. And what he's doing is he's saying, be ready, be ready. I want to prove to you that I can come down in the form of man if I want to. But one day I'm going to come down and I'm going to die on a cross and I'm going to redeem my people once and for all. It's like a setup all through the Old Testament. Joshua meets this guy. So you know who he's talking to now, right? He's talking to the Lord God. He's talking to Jesus, pre-incarnate form. And it's Jesus that confronts Joshua. Joshua confronts him back. And you say, okay, wait a minute. Okay, so this is Jesus. Well, what does it have to do with have I met the real Jesus? Have you started to notice something? When Jacob meets the real God, what happens? A wrestling match breaks out. When Job meets the real God, he faces a tornado. 
When Joshua meets the real God, what happens? He's a warrior armed to the teeth with sword drawn and ready for action. Meeting Jesus is not a warm, fuzzy experience. When Isaiah met the Lord, he said, in chapter 6, verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He said, Woe is me, I am broken into a million pieces. Here, listen, listen, don't, stay with me. If I come to your house and I knock on the door, and you open it, and you say, Come in, Jeff, but stay out vines. I kind of look at you and say, well, what? Come in, Jeff, but stay out vines. I don't know what to do. I, I can't do that. You, you either get Jeff and vines or you get none at all. You can't just have half of them. I, mean, I don't know how to divide those up. What's your point? My parents' generation, every generation errs somewhere, okay? Every generation, and the pendulum's always swinging. My father's generation, they were not a, a generation of grace. They weren't. It was all law, no grace, no mercy, but this generation has its own fault too. And you know what it is? You're fence riders. You're halfway in and halfway out. You want the Jesus who will love you, help you, comfort you through hard times, but you don't want the Holy One that comes riding on a white horse and his name is the name above all names. And he requires you to live a pure and holy life. He doesn't ask you or suggest that you do so. He says that you pursue holy living, that you pursue righteousness, that you come from out the world and your life is so distinct that you're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that you're a light in the dark world, that you're the salt of the earth. He insists, he doesn't ask, he insists that you remain pure until you're married. He insists and commands that you seek first the kingdom of God and everything else second. He commands that you practice extreme generosity, that you feed those who are hungry, that you clothe those who are clothless, that you give water to those who are thirsty, that you pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say, let me give you a suggestion. He says, I'm the general, I'm the real commander. Do as I say. And if you take Jesus without the Christ, you get neither. You get none at all. Listen, listen, folks. Folks, if the distance from here to the sun, uh, 96 million miles, if we represent the distance from here to the sun by a sheet of paper, and let's say that sheet of paper is 96 million miles, the distance from Earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. Can you Each piece of paper represents 96 million miles from Earth to the nearest star, a stack of paper 70 feet high. And if you consider that the diameter of our galaxy alone, how large it is, it would be a stack of paper 310 miles high with each piece of paper representing 96 million miles. And the Bible says, that's our little galaxy. There's billions more galaxies. And Jesus, according to the scripture, holds the universe together. It's incredible power. Do you ask someone like that to be your assistant? Do you? That's a lot of power and a lot of authority. Here's what's happening. Jesus, in pre-incarnate form, a Christophany as we call it in theology, says to Joshua, Joshua says, 
I'm the general, I'm the commander. Are you for me or against me? I need to know, I need to know now. And he says, no. What does he mean? He means this, Joshua, I am not the kind of person that you ask, am I for you or against you? I'm the kind of person who asks you, are you for me or against me? Make your decision right now. See, Joshua, the real question is, are you going to continue to be the general? Are you going to be the lieutenant in my army? Are you going to sign up for my army? Are you going to continue to spend your life trying to get me to sign up for yours? Are you going to insist on being the general and having the plans of your life? Are you going to submit to my plans for your life? Which one is it? Are you for me or against me? If you ask me that, Joshua, that's the wrong question. If I ask you that question, it's the right question because I'm the general ready to fight for the Lord. Are you in or not? And you're either all in, Joshua, or you're not in at all. I come as the general or I don't come at all. Have you met that Jesus? Have you met that one? You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I don't really know. How do I know? Because there was a point in your life when you were down on your knees and you were crying, God, please give me this. Please give me this. Please help me this way. Please, God, please, God, please, God. Are you for me, God, or against me? And you heard a voice that said, neither. Neither. The question is, are you for me or against me? And then you dropped to your knees in worship and you said, forgive me. And you said, God, command me. Just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Is that you? Man, look, this is our problem. That if this entire circle is righteousness within the Christian faith and the law of God, rather than most of us pursuing the center and saying, man, I want to do what is necessary to be holy and righteous and just. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. Most of us don't do that. We try to see how far away from the center we can live without falling off the edge. And Jesus says, no. You're either all in. Now, you're not perfect, but your pursuit toward perfection is there. And Christ knows your heart. If he is who he says he is, then not a single corner of your life belongs to you. Your marriage, your family, your stuff, your kids, your resources, all of it, all belongs to God for his purposes. And when you met the real Jesus, that is the day you heard him say, neither The real question is, are you for me or against me? Are you willing to do what I say to do? Go where I say to go. Give up what I say to give up. Behave as I tell you to behave. I'm the general. That's why military people get this. They get, because when you're in the military, man, and the general gives you an order, you don't say, well, I'd like to discuss that for a moment. You just get the job done because you know who's in charge. And Jesus says, I'm no different. I tell you what to do and you do it. Let me tell you, when Jesus comes into your life and he tells you, hey, the real question is, are you for me or against me? And then you get out on your knees and worship. I know who you are now. And you say, command me. And Jesus says, are you for me or against me? Let me tell you what your answer cannot be. Your answer cannot be neither. You can't say, well, you know, I'm not really all in with you, Jesus, but I'm not really against you either. I reserve the right of every day and every decision to choose then. And Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then in Revelation 3, I know your deeds that you're neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Here's Hierapolis with the hot springs. Here is Colossae with the cold mountain refreshing springs. And then here is Laodicea, the people to whom this letter is written. And their water travels through an aqueduct for miles and miles. And when you taste it, 
When visitors tasted the water of Laodicea for the first time, it was lukewarm, having traveled through those aqueducts, and they would spit it out of their mouths. Jesus looks at that, uses it as a metaphor, and says, I'll do the same with people who are fence riders. Joshua knew exactly who this was because he knelt down and began to worship. And he said, command me. And he says, okay, you want to command, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And the Bible says Joshua did so because that's Joshua. Are you courageous? Have you met the real Jesus? Now I've got to move. One last question, and this is what we've been working toward. Do you believe that all things are possible with God? I mean, really, really, I mean, do, do, you believe, do you believe that your marriage is too far gone? Do you believe that your kids are too far gone? Do you believe that your finances are too far gone? Do you believe that your career is too far gone? Then your God is small. Never too far gone. Now, here's what happens. It's like, it's like Jesus says, Joshua, okay, you've passed the test. You've been courageous. You've been willing to confront the Lord God. But then when you recognized who I was, you got down on your knees and you began to worship. So I can trust you, Joshua. You're courageous, but you've met the real me and you're serving. So now here's what I'm going to tell you to do. If you will obey me, I'm going to break down the walls. Now it's interesting the information Joshua receives because basically here's what he's told. Get the children of Israel, march around the walls of Jericho six times, one time per day. And on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then on the seventh time, the walls are going to fall. Now you look at that and think, what's that going to do? But you miss the symbols in the narrative. Because one, they're supposed to march with the Ark of the Covenant and the priests are leading. This is not a war march. This is a liturgical march. It is a seven-day worship service to acknowledge that, God, I can't, but you can. And so the priests go out before the Ark and then they're supposed to blow the ram's horn. Did you know this is the same word in the Hebrew for jubilee? And Jubilee is the year where all debts are forgiven and the land is restored to its original owners. Because in reality, Israelites are just simply taking the land that was theirs from the beginning. They're going back, they're receiving what was originally theirs. And they march for seven days, seven times around the seventh day. In Hebrew, there are three words. One word is seven, one word is week, and one word is the word for covenant. And those words look exactly the same. Little bit of difference, not much. So that the children of Israel knew what was happening. This wasn't a war march. I mean, the people of Jericho aren't up on the top of the wall saying, man, this is scary looking, you know. No. But even in the ancient Mesopotamian world, they knew that there was a climactic thing happening with the number seven. They knew when they got up the seventh day and they looked out and they were still marching, I guarantee the people of Jericho were saying, "Uh uh-oh, this cannot be good. They knew as they marched the seventh time and they were blowing the ram's horn, God is keeping his covenant with Abraham. The land will be returned to you. Let's march around the seventh time. The covenant is becoming a reality. Let's blow the ram's horn. The year of Jubilee, what is rightfully ours, what God has promised is being restored. And because they obeyed and did what God asked them to do, even though it might not have made much sense, the walls fell and crumbled. Now here's, here is that climactic point in the message. <sighs> Obedience always precedes a miracle. Always. Every single time. God says, if you do this and then I'm going to do something incredible. The miracle of salvation. He says to his son, obey me and it's going to be hard. You're going to be killed. 
but there's going to be joy on the other side and the salvation for the world. Obedience precedes a miracle. There are many of you in this room that need a miracle. You need a miracle in your marriage. You need a miracle in your career. You need a miracle in your life. Some, you need God to intervene, and if he doesn't, you're toast. And it starts when you say, here I am, God, command me. And day by day, you begin to obey. And brick after brick in the wall begins to fall. And weeks, months, maybe years from now, you look back and say, wow, look at what God did. Let me give you an example, and that's the end of the message. I, I, I had a great grandmother. Her is my dad's mother. We called her the round mound of sound because she had a great voice and she was a little pudgy. And you can say that after they're dead and gone. And uh, I, uh, she had uh, uh, white hair, you know, beautiful curly white hair, very poor. And the grandma Bessie, she's an amazing woman. She was a diabetic near the end of her life and she lost her eyesight, all of it. Couldn't see anything. Didn't matter though, because when the four grandsons would come over, we'd sit around on her sofa with this photo of the angel hanging above and she would read the Bible. So I thought she said she was blind. She had memorized the entire New Testament. Part of the reason is probably because she didn't have a television. I'm just saying. <laughs> we would sit around her and she would say, Jeffrey or Tony or Timothy or Jody, one of you open the Bible. Whose turn is it? We'd get to go get the big Bible and open the big Bible. And she would say, where are you? Uh, Luke 14. And she would start to read, but she wasn't looking at it. She was just quoting it word for word. She loved God. And my dad loved his mother. As she got older, she survived two husbands, two great husbands, but she was getting older. We were also poor. And my dad was killing himself 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks, trying to take care of four boys in a two bedroom house. And I remember the night my dad said, okay, Kids, gather around me just for a moment, if you would. And we all gather around and say, we're all going to get on our knees and we're going to pray for Grandma Bessie. And my mom read us a Bible story from one of those big picture books. And Dad, what are we praying for Grandma Bessie? Is she okay? Well, she's okay, son, but we need a miracle. What kind of miracle, Dad? Well, I'm working 70, 80 hour weeks. We don't have a caregiver. Her husband's, you know, she doesn't have somebody to take care of. She's poor. We're trying to help her financially, but I need somebody there to take care of. She can't see and... I just need God to show me the way. We need a miracle. And we prayed together. Little boys, little, you know, just down on our knees praying, God, please send a miracle. A couple of weeks later, we're out on the front porch of Grandma Bessie's house, just in the rocking chairs, you know, uh, and the eight hound dogs, you know, it's Tennessee. And <laughs> we're out there and just rocking back and forth. Grandma Bessie's there. Dad's on the swing with her and the four boys are on the porch, just sitting on the porch whittling. I don't know, just playing with wood. I'm just saying. <laughs> There's a man starts walking down the street. And in Tennessee, as we say, he was drunk as a skunk. Drunk as a skunk. He's walking down. And uh, my grandmother, and she can't see, but she perks up. What is that, Dean? Dean's my father's name. What is that, Dean? Oh, uh, mom, it's just a drunk, just yelling and howling at the moon. And he was all kinds of profanity, cursing, swearing, all kinds of stuff coming out, cursing God, saying he hates God in the world. And my grandmother keeps saying, Dean, yes, mom, take me to him. 
I'm never, my dad says, now, now, mom, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what he's been. You don't want to go out there. They ain't taking me to him. Now, you have to understand something. My grandmother went to church every weekend at Pierce's Free Will Baptist Church, and it had Pentecostal overtones. God bless those Pentecostals. And my grandmother had the gift of shouting. Now, I know the gift of shouting is not in the Bible. Nevertheless, nevertheless, my grandmother had the gift of shouting. So that means when we would go to church with her, about halfway through the pastor's sermon, she would just stand up, raise her hands to heaven, and go, oh, how? <laughs> and her boys were like, what is this? And I'd say, Dad, what happened? What happened? He'd say, your grandmother has the gift of shouting. What is that? I don't know. Shut up. <laughs> and we always waited for it every weekend. And then the pastor would say, amen, Sister Bessie. God bless you. And grandma would just kind of sit down. <laughs> and it's like the service just took a new direction and the spirit just filled the air. Now, grandma's aggressive. Just to show you, anybody with a gift of shouting is aggressive. They ain't shy. They ain't take me out there. No, mama. The Lord has spoken. And he said, go and talk to that man. The Lord has commanded me. She didn't use those words. I threw that in. But the Lord has told me, go and speak to him. And he said, I'm not taking you out there. He said, well, I'll go myself. And she starts to move. And she's so stubborn. Dad says, well, I got to carry her. So dad kind of takes her by the arm. And he's trying to talk her out of it all the way to the end of the sidewalk. And of course, we four boys, were just, this is going to be good. <laughs> and she gets out with my dad to the sidewalk. This, and about the time she's at the end of the sidewalk, this drunkard's right in front. She grabs his arm with the help of my father. And I can't remember the exact words. It's been a while, but I can remember the gist of the conversation. Something like this. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Look at you. God has given you air to breathe. You've got life. You've got clothes on your back. And you obviously have enough money to buy whiskey. So stop cursing God. And you get on your knees and you repent in Jesus' name right now. Now, I could tell you what happened after that. But the important thing for you to know is this. Every Sunday after that encounter, he drove my grandmother to church. Every Sunday morning. <laughs> I'll tell you something else. Not only that, but he picked her up on Tuesday and Friday mornings and took her to get groceries, and he ended up taking care for her until the day that she died. Now, here's my point. There's not a lot of people that would have confronted that drunk guy, but she heard God. She said, command me, and maybe it's because she had so much of the word of God in her that she could hear the voice of God as clear as a bell, and she started walking, and the miracle always happens after obedience. Now we come to Joshua. We're at the end of the book. Do you know what happens? Joshua's an old man. He's even older than he was when he started the battle of Jericho. Now it's the end of the book of Joshua. And you know what he does? He makes one last plea. I love this dude, man. He comes to me. I got to talk to you guys. Listen, listen, <laughs> I'm tired and I'm old, but listen, choose today who you're going to serve. Choose for yourselves. The God of the Amorites, Gods of Egypt, are you going to worship the one and true God? But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's the last we hear of Joshua. <laughs> there have been walls built in everybody's life. You need a miracle. And it happens when you say, command me, O God. And you allow God, little by little, to break down those walls because you continue to obey obedience always precedes the miraculous. And it is our dream. It should be our dream to obey the commands of the general that he might do great things in us. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Father, I want to thank you for the power of another strong biblical narrative. And I, I pray that our eyes would be open, that yes, we are saved by grace through faith, and we are grateful that no one can take that away. But Father, we also know if we want the windows of heaven to open up and pour out your blessing into any aspect of our lives, it's going to require courage. It's going to require obedience. And when we can stand back and watch the supernatural power of the Lord Jesus Christ intervene in a natural setting to do something that is unexplainable other than the power and the working of God. When we need that in our lives, in our marriages, in our work, in our relationships with our children, whatever it is, we know that the miracle is preceded with obedience. And I pray that you give us the courage now to step across the line, to draw it in the sand and say, Lord, command me, I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.